Good morning, and welcome to the Sydney Opera House for today's Festival of Dangerous Ideas session. Uh, my name is Michael Williams. I'm the director of the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne, and I'm very happy to be here with today's two extremely distinguished guests. I'd like to pay my respects to the Gadigal people, the elders past and present, and the elders of other communities who may be with us today. Uh, for me, an acknowledgement of country is also an acknowledgement uh, that the legal and moral implications of invasion remain unresolved to this day. To but enough of that, to television. Uh, and in particular, the claim that television has replaced the novel. This wouldn't be a nice inner city festival of ideas if there wasn't a session about the threat faced by the novel. The novel's always up against it, whether it's, uh, whether it's the e-books or Amazon, or in this case, the insidious forces of television. Uh, we're led to believe that the novel is in danger of being on the way out. And we have, as I said, two very distinguished guests to discuss this question today. Uh, so Salman Rushdie uh, needs no introduction. Many of you will have seen his uh, extraordinary uh, keynote address last night. Uh, he's one of the most celebrated novelists of our time. He's the author of the Booker Prize winning Midnight's Children, The Satanic Verses, and most recently the memoir Joseph Anton. Uh, famously, uh, he made some public statements that upset people, uh, in particular the statement uh, that The Wire was just another TV show, uh, <laughs> another cop show. <laughs> he's, uh, he's had a very difficult time of it ever since. <laughs> and our other guest today is Emily Nussbaum. Emily is the uh, New Yorker's television critic. She's in the past contributed essays and criticism to Slate, New York Magazine, and the New York Times, among others. And she used to be a poetry critic before she was a TV critic. Um, I'm sure they're on a continuum. There's so much poetry on our screens. Uh, please give them both a big round of applause. We have, though, characteristically, right from the off, a problem here, which is that neither of our guests today agree with the proposition that television has replaced the novel. Emily? Yes, this is true. We, uh, after consulting with one another, we decided that we'd been tricked and told that the other person believed that television had replaced the novel. <laughs> so essentially what you're watching is, is a complicated puppeteering match where I've been spending the week assuming um, that Salman believed that the novel was defunct, um, but no, I discovered I, that's not true. I'm so not on the death of the novel team. You know, I mean, I, I remember, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, V.S. Nifal announced that the novel was dead um, and then wrote a novel. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it's, uh, it's, I just think it's a non-story, really. I don't although, know. although I, I it, Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> no. <laughs> because I'd been thinking about this, um, presuming that this was, Something other than, you know, on Slate magazine, there's a thing called Slate Pitches, which is this sort of clickbaity headline. So I actually had been thinking about this headline and considering it. And there, I mean, there is an argument to be made that is not actually about the aesthetics of the two forms, but simply and straightforwardly about um, the amount of time that people spend consuming them and what people talk about at cocktail parties when they're finding mutual artistic sources to use as kind of prisms to talk about other matters through. In that sense, I mean, any art form ends up in, any, in competition with any other art form, and there's been this big conversation about that. But 
Me personally, I mean, aside from the fact that I love novels and I'm not, I, I, I really bridle at the idea that the two medium are in competition, I'm not concerned about the novel, I'm concerned about television and my main feeling about this proposition is that the danger here is not to the novel, it's to TV. Because to my mind, during the time that I've been thinking and writing about television, um, the thing I've perpetually been told is that TV is the new novel. And I actually think this is harmful because TV is its own medium. And right from the beginning when I was writing about TV, uh, a lot of panels that I've been asked to appear on are TV is the new novel or TV is the new movies. And the harm, the harm in this, I think, is that it has to do with the, the history of television and its status in the culture as um, shameful garbage, a kind of drug, a kind of junk, and that the only way to praise it was to say, The Wire is like Dickens, or The Sopranos is like Scorsese. And there are ways in which those comparisons are interesting, but they're completely deadening to discussion of TV. Mm. Because the point should be celebrating all of the things that make TV TV, not what make it yeah. like the novel. And it, it basically cuts out the conversation of comedy, all the formal elements of TV, the nature of episodes. So anyway, when I, when I look at this, what I basically think is I never, wanna, I, I never want anyone to say this show is so great because it's like a novel again. On the other hand, it's hard to deny that just historically the two forms do have something in common yeah. because of the origins of the novel. Well, I think that's, you know, you could say that TV has something in common with the 18th century novel, mm -hmm. which yes. was published episodically. You know, and, and where the audience or the readership really interacted with the writer. You know, he would write in and say what they wanted to happen, and then the writer would either agree or disagree. The death of Little Nell being a precursor to David Chase saying Tony Soprano has died. Or not died. Or not he, died. I, he seems confused about it. Um, but it's, I mean, it certainly happened with the book that's in a way considered to be the birth of the realist novel, which is Samuel Richardson's novel Clarissa. Um, in, in which, in the middle of the novel, the man who's, supposed, who's been set up to be the hero of the novel, Lovelace, actually rapes Clarissa, and thus reveals himself to be something less than a hero. And in spite of this, in spite of this very dark moment, readers wrote in in very large numbers, demanding that Richardson somehow provide what they wanted as a happy ending, which is that Lovelace and Clarissa got together happily at the end, in spite of the rape. And Richardson rather admirably refused to give in, would not do it, you know. And, but there was that sense of, of, of real intercourse between the writer and the reader um, in a way that doesn't happen now, you know. So, but, I mean, the thing I wanted to say to Emily is that one of the reasons why people came, keep saying this thing about, about the television being like the novel is that television people seem to think it too. That, you know, when I got approached by Showtime to, to try and make a show for them, one of the things that they said to me was that, you know, I mean, basically they've said quite straightforwardly, I mean, David Nevins, who's the president of Showtime, um, said to me that his job was to take Showtime up against HBO. I mean, that was kind of his, what he had to do. And he said that he thought he couldn't do that from inside the existing talent pool of television writing. And so he wanted to bring in people, writers of other kinds, like novelists, to, to have a go at doing it. And there seemed to be a moment a couple of years ago, we were talking about, you know, where every novelist in America was trying to develop a 60-minute drama series. And none, not a single one of them, including me, got the series picked up. 
<laughs> so, you know, Franzen, Lethem, Junot Diaz, Harry Kunzru. Uh, Chabon. Yeah, Chabon, me, and the, even to the point where I, mean, I don't think anything's happened with this either, that I heard that HBO had bought the rights to the whole of William Faulkner. David and that David making, Milch was going yeah. to adapt the whole of Faulkner. For, 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 for. I think Milch is doing the whole of Faulkner as a single monologue, though, so it's going to be a tricky work. Yes, it is, it is a single just, episode. I'm just curious, when you're approached by someone like David Nevins, who says, we want you to do TV, your, your novelist sensibility is going to redeem our network, were you flattered? Were you tempted? Well, I was interested, is what I was, you know, because, I mean, I do think that it's that the 60-minute drama series has become a real thing, you know, in our, in our time. It's become a very, very interesting and creative form, you know. And, and it's always kind of amazing, particularly when, you know, at, at, at my age, when you're not just starting out, to be given the chance to do something you've never done, you know. And, and, and I mean, yeah, I was interested. And I understand you pitched a show about unicorns and werewolves. Uh, to the, no, not really. Yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> unicorns, werewolf unicorns. Ah, good, good. Un unicorns, unicorns that ate people. That is catchy. <laughs> <laughs> was it an adaptation of another work, or were you writing an original work? No, you? it was an original. Uh, it was a kind of, I mean, I in a way went back to my teenage self, which was very fond of science fiction. Mm. And, and had a, and developed, it was a science fiction idea, um, which, they, which we worked on for, I mean, a year and a half before they decided it wasn't for them. And I, I'm curious about the process of working on this, because one of the things, when I think about the things that make television distinctive, historically, it's always been this highly collaborative art form that yeah. involves, in a lot of cases, although not universally, a writer's room where people sort of plan yes. out entire seasons, yeah. There's also the collaboration yeah. of, the, of the executives, yeah. which varies at different places. Well, were we you in a writer's you know, room? We were just, in a sense, I, mean, I was just, I wrote one of three or four drafts of a pilot. I mean, it was just at that stage. But clearly, because of my inexperience in the form, had they picked it up, they would have appointed a showrunner and, and they would have had a writer's room and etc. Also because I didn't feel like writing 13 one-hour episodes and spending the rest of my life, you know, doing that. So I was quite up for having a writer's room, you know, of doing the thing which you're supposed to do, which is to write the Bible, mm -hmm. interestingly named. Um, but you, write, you, know, you write the whole the kind of outline of it, and then you get the writer's room to work with you. I mean, that was, I, I felt okay about that. I mean, because, well, if only because immediately before working on this project, I'd been uh, writing a screenplay of, for the novel of Midnight's Children, and, and you know, I'd, I'd actually quite, I'd actually enjoyed the collaborative process with the director, Deepa Mehta. And, and I thought, well, the secret of this is if you're working with people you like working with, that it's fine, you know? And, and David Nevins, I must say, I, was, I, was, I remain very impressed by him. I think he's a very smart and interesting guy. But there was a problem with Showtime, which is in a way a problem of, of this, of how they've become successful, you know? Uh, that, the, the way in which they became successful was with shows like Dexter, um, which gave them this, what they thought was the Showtime formula, which is to have a hero with a twist, you know, with a dark side or with a... And they kept saying to me about the main character in my, in my pilot, you know, what's his thing? And I said, well, he's like this, this is who he is, and this is what happened. Yeah, but, but what's his thing? 
<laughs> and I thought, does he have to have a thing? I would have thought the flesh-eating <laughs> unicorn would be enough. But yes. I, <laughs> I, so this idea of the anti-hero, you've written a lot about it, and, and the way in which uh, this kind of premium television model seems to be being built around a formula. Yeah, it, it, it's, interesting, it's interesting hearing that story about Showtime, actually, because I often, you know, I don't work in television, I write about television, and I'm always curious in this sort of both naive and voyeuristic way about essentially what ends up producing the stories. And a lot of times it does have to do, it seems to me, with this, um, this, this notion of what ambition or what the formula would entail. And it is interesting to me historically that so many uh, television cable networks have essentially, what they've done is they've existed, they've financed a show, the show's become a hit, and then that hit has become the brand of yes. the network that they've tried to repeat in many exactly different that. ways. So, yeah. you know, this happens in many cases. I mean, which, with HBO, they had um, The Sopranos and Sex and the City came out and sort of simultaneously became big hits. And, you know, it's not TV, it's HBO became their thing and beautiful DVDs and all of this kind of stuff. AMC had their own set of shows. Um, FX did this, and with the WB, WB essentially had no idea of what it was, except that it was somewhat for teenagers, and then Buffy the Vampire Slayer came, Slayer came out, yes. and that was their thing. So this question of how um, formulas originate and then get replicated is really native to the economy of television, and sometimes it seems very fruitful, and sometimes it seems like an absolutely stifling thing. And the anti-hero, which was part of the explosion of ambition on TV, especially in the late 90s, running into the early part of the century, very excitingly. You know, when The Sopranos came out, like everybody else, I was thrilled, because it really felt like it was doing something different with television. And part of that was because the main character was someone who the audience would both identify with and become repelled by. And that really broke the main rule of TV. Because the main rule of TV was that it had to be likable enough that you would invite it back in every week. And historically on network television, the note was not what's the guy's twist and dark side, but he's not likable enough. You have to puppy up to the audience and make them like the person. So when The Sopranos came out, that was really a huge deal because suddenly you had this model of this towering, complicated character who was also actually a criminal sociopath. And over the course of the show, it, it seemed to me that the creator of that show became incredibly frustrated at people being attracted to and liking Tony Soprano to the point that the show essentially ended with him, like uh, as with what you were describing with the early novel, yeah. punching his audience in the face for their desire to have closure, satisfaction, and pleasure. But that show really began a rolling set of very powerful explorations of masculinity, often with characters that reflected the struggles of their creators. Um, so you get this bookshelf of shows like Sopranos, Breaking Bad, Deadwood, to a certain extent, Mad Men. Um, uh, I'm, I feel like I'm leaving, oh, and The Wire. Um, <laughs> and these shows, I feel, all had reflections of one another and dealt with the same themes. But I do feel like what you have now, unfortunately, are a lot of imitators of those shows, yeah. some of which are very beautiful, but don't have that much to say. But they keep being received sometimes as another great masterpiece has come out with a fantastic anti-hero. And uh, uh, to me, that's been very frustrating because, you know, like anything, it, it, it's become a bit of a... Um, 
it's just a formula recipe that people try to follow, and if they don't have anything original to say, it doesn't expand the art form. And personally, I'm much more interested, when we're talking about hour-long dramas, because we can talk about comedy as well, but um, with shows that really rattle those old forms and shake up the division between comedy and drama, shake up the notion of how stories are told. And actually, I'm also interested in shows like The Good Wife, which actually is in many ways an anti-hero show, um, with Alicia Florek playing that role, but is harder to recognize in that way because it doesn't fit that model of like the gritty, violent, masculine universe cable show. So, well, I mean, one, you know, one of the things that attracted me was exactly this idea that that kind of weird is good, you know, that you, you don't have to have a heroic hero. Um, I mean, that the anti-hero is more interesting than the hero. The, mm-hmm. um, and that the weirder it is, kind of the better it is. Because I thought, you know, I do weird, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and so that ought, to, that ought to suit me, you know. And, and also, it, one of the things that is often said about the 60-minute drama series um, is that it's a writer's form. That, yes. that, you know, that the writer is the primary creative artist. You know, The Sopranos is David Chase's show, and Mad Men is Matthew Wiener's show, and, you know, and so on. So it's the, the writer, um, and actually like my personal favorite, Deadwood, you know, was, was, uh, which I wish had gone on for much longer, if we only because <laughs> it was so wonderful to see so much possible. filthy. Everyone here, give me ten dollars. We'll get Deadwood off the ground again. I think. Please, it's, if that's, only Salman and Emily that's the leading new, the campaign. The new economic model of television is like an in-person Kickstarter at large literary festivals. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd be happy to work with David Milch in the writers' room on Deadwood because I loved using that much bad language. <laughs> I'd be happy to apply mud to most I mean, of the actors. Know, yeah, I mean, four-letter words used like punctuation. You know, used, used like. Be commas, careful what you wish for. You know. Um, anyway. <laughs> That the free the 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 novel the 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 fact that writers were in charge essentially or or allegedly, and that um, there was a kind of freedom of subject matter and treatment of it, which you didn't get on the on the networks, you know, so that you could have bad language, you could have sex and violence, you could have more or less. I mean, this is basically adding up to Game of Thrones, isn't it? Um, you could have unicorns, dragons, etc., and um, nudity, and all those things we love so much. Um, but the, in other words, there were not limits preset on, on what you could do, and, and that was attractive. That is attractive, I think. Does it feel to you like at this point in time there are limits preset on what you can do with the novel? No, no, the novel's easy. You can, you know, I mean, the great thing, you know, it, the, when Douglas Adams wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, he destroyed the Earth on page one. You know, I mean, I mean, try doing that in a TV show. You know, I mean, cost money. Um, you know, in a, in a novel, you just say, you know, then they destroyed the Earth um, to make to make room for an interstellar bypass, as I recall. Um, so no, I mean, the novel has that has those liberties. But the reason why I think novelists were drawn towards television drama writing was because it seemed that, you know, on cable, you had a similar freedom of, uh, uh, of creativity. But you don't, in fact. That's the problem. You're still dealing with men in a boardroom but that you have to persuade. I wanted to pick that up because you did say in last night's keynote that one of the things that 
makes the novel such a challenging form to society is the fact that it belongs to no one. And I'm curious, Emily, about the extent to which you believe TV belongs to everyone. Well, to, to some extent, TV does belong to everyone because TV is a medium that is about the relationship with the audience in a very direct way. And historically, although this is changing a bit, um, you know, when you love a show, you watch it over years, episodically, um, and there's this mass television audience that watches it with you, and increasingly you're highly aware of them because of the internet. And the nature of TV has changed anyway because now you can freeze it and rewind it and save it, and it's a text that you share with other people. But it's true that because of the economics of television and because of the history of the form, it's always... It, I mean, part of the reason people put it down earlier was because there were a lot of, you know, crappy commercial shows. Um, but also because everyone watched it together. And the notion of the sort of must-see TV network mass audience is, is what formed it. But now that's really not true. I mean, there are many, many different ways in which TV comes to people. And the, the rise of these small cable networks is really emboldening to um, creators that, yes, they speak to their audience, but the audience might be small. That there should be economic models to create shows that aren't for everyone is crucial to the explosion of great TV that's happened. I often have commented that 30 Rock is one of my favorite television shows, and of course that was on network television, but it was on a network that was failing so badly they couldn't afford to cancel it. It's the only reason the show survived. So sometimes you have these crazy tap dances, but then you also have um, Channels Life FX, where Louis C.K. went there and they essentially offered him a small amount of money and his agent was like, you should ask for a bit more and he went to them and they said, we'll give you a bit more money but then you actually do have to take notes from the executives. And he took the smaller amount of money because their model was you know, essentially in a tourist model. It's a one-man show and different networks do different things and I see stuff happening on the internet. There's a show called High Maintenance that I keep talking about that's it's a, a strange self-made show. The episodes are, some of them are six minutes long, some of them are 12 minutes. It's about a, a pot dealer in New York who bicycles around. And each of the episodes is about a different one of his customers. It's a very visual show. And honestly, like a lot of the shows I'm really interested in now, it just doesn't fit into the old TV formats that were the commercial formats. I mean, it's funny, it's sad, it's sexy, it's strange, and frankly, it's very poetic. Um, but also, because it's online and it's funded a different way, they really do have the freedom not to say, this is a half-hour sitcom. And there are a lot of these other shows on, a lot of them on cable networks, including everything from, you know, Orange is the New Black, which is a Netflix show and really merges all sorts of formal things, comedy and drama in different ways, uh, Louis and Girls and a lot of shows like that that have more indie movie aesthetics. I mean, that's all made possible by the ability to speak to the audience in a way other than trying to reach as many people as possible. And like, all I hope for is that, just you know, thinking of the industry, is that not everything ends up being what you're talking about, which is the very frustrating situation where somebody has an original idea mm -hmm. and then they're told that they have to form it into this mold that's the commercial mold. But I have to say, I'm fascinated by the gold rush on novelists because you're right. I mean, everyone came in and no shows came out. And if anyone can get me the copy of whatever happened with the corrections, I will be forever grateful to you because I've always wanted to watch this failed pilot of the corrections. But I, well, I mean... You know, one of the things is that novelist, novelists, including me, are not very good at sitting in boardrooms with suits 
telling them about their work. Mm -hmm. I don't take kindly to it. <laughs> um, and, um, on account of if they could do that, why aren't they doing it? But also I wonder whether novelists were also um, just what you're saying, which is not comfortable with being told by other people well, what should be in the yeah. thing, but, but also not... I mean, the, a lot of the people who created the most interesting TV shows are... Well, they didn't come from novel writing, but they're very resistant yes, to getting... No, no, absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the big differences between the form of the drama series and, and the form of the novel is that the novel is a thing that tells a story and then stops. You know, um, the famous advice in court given by the King of Hearts to the White Rabbit when he's having trouble giving evidence. And the King of Hearts says, begin at the beginning, go on until you reach the end, and then stop. <laughs> and and, and that's, that's kind of what the novel does. But that is not what the television series does. It no, goes no. on until you reach the end and then finds a way to hang on until next year. That's right. So uh, although, if you're a although, show like Although Homeland. actually that model's changing too. And mm. this is one... Of, I mean, it's funny because I think about a few ways in which... The, the relationships between the forums often have to do with the changes in technology and the ability of people to make certain kinds of shows, but the anthology show does end. Yeah. So, you, you know, this has really begun with um, uh, Ryan Murphy making American Horror Story. The first season came on and people assumed, as you're saying, that it had to keep going, mm. but it ends at the end of the first season, yeah. and then they just use the same cast and make a new story the second season. That seems yeah, like... Yeah. Well, we were saying this yesterday uh, backstage, that if only this had happened to Homeland. Yes, Homeland. Uh, that, that, you know, that, that season one of Homeland is an almost perfect dramatic structure. You know, um, but it requires the ending that they couldn't give it. Exactly. And they, they had, wanted to give it. Yeah. 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 But that would have ended the story. Mm -hmm. you know, and it would have been like one season of great drama. Um, instead of what happened. I, while, I, <laughs> <laughs> while I think, uh, while I completely accept that uh, novelists being brought on to create shows has had a checkered history, there are, there's a better track record of novelists working in the writer's room. I mean, The Wire had three or four career novelists who David Simon gathered around him, Pelicanos, Richard Price, yes. uh, a couple of others. Nick Pizzolato, who wrote True Detective, yes. is a novelist. Yes, um, that's true. You know, there's something about that temperament that seems to suit uh, the writer's room in terms of the output of the show, perhaps. It's interesting, because I, I, I told you, I had had a conversation with um, Pelicanus about, you know, he, he, he essentially said, a lot of novelists really bridle at the very different social and creative expectation of what it means to collaborate with people. And he said that he, he for whatever reason, he, he didn't, he enjoyed it, and he felt like the rooftop scene that he'd written for The Wire, um, which is just yeah. famously like this beautiful central, he, he said that he felt it was the best thing that he'd ever written. But he also did feel like it just used entirely, I don't want to speak for him, but he just said it, it used entirely different emotional and creative muscles. And I, I do think, like, I mean, I can't speak for a novelist, but it just seems like one of the major advantages of that art form is exactly what you're talking about, which is the isolated sense of control. Like, you know, obviously it's not as though novels aren't published by publishing companies and don't have audiences and don't have economic aspects too, but essentially it's all text. And aside from working in a writer's room, a TV show is, is collaboration with cinematographers and editors and actors, yeah. and novelists don't have to work yeah, with actors. Well, I, mean, I think you know, it's interesting that so many thriller writers 
have made successful transitions into, into film and television, you know, mm -hmm. whether it's Elmore Leonard or, or Pelicanos or, you know, many others, um, uh, Carl Hyacin, you know, I mean, lot, lots of them, um, Walter Mosley, you know, um, it seems to be something about the, 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 the way in which you make a thriller which has something to do with, which, with the way in which you make one of these shows like The Wire, you know. Um, I think one of the difficulties for, sort of for, serious, for literary novelists is that a process that is normally internal has to become external, that yes. you have to start speaking about and arguing about character and theme and development and structure in a way that normally you just, that's a conversation you have inside your head, you know, and, and suddenly you're having to have that conversation with other people who have points of view about it. Um, and as I say, I, I had such a good experience working on the screenplay of Midnight's Children, where you of course have to do that, you know, um, that that part didn't strike me as a problem. And unfortunately, I didn't get to that part, you know, because when you're, when you're developing the pilot, you're not working with a director or a cinematographer or actors or whatever, you know, because, of course, once there's a cast, that shapes your character again. You know, you, you have to change the character because of what the, what the actor brings to it sometimes, you know. But I never got to that point because I didn't get out of the boardroom with the people reading the pilot. So the stuff you took into the boardroom, I'm curious, in, is the unused work for a pilot going to appear in a novel? Can you no. see that work being interchangeable oh, with prose? Oh, can it be used somewhere else? Yeah. Don't know. I mean, don't know. I hate the idea of wasted work, so, so, you know, so, so probably. But I don't know. Right now, I mean, I feel, you know, if you work on something like this for on and I mean, not non-stop, but on and off for, for a long period of time, I mean, like a year and a half, and then, and then it kind of hits a wall, there's a bit where you lose enthusiasm for it. Well, you, one thing I would like to say about what you're saying, which is interesting and complicated is that there is actually a model on TV that's about individual creation. And there's been a lot of shows in the last few years that really are formally created by one person in a, in a different way. I mean, Louis, Louis' show is very much like that. Um, in the first season, he actually edited it, among other things, like just edited on his computer. He changed that later on. And then there are a couple of shows where they're solo written. Some of those shows are brilliant, but uh, some of those shows are severely flawed. Aaron Sorkin's Newsroom comes to mind. And I'm not a huge fan of um, True Detective, and I've written about that, and I actually wonder what it would have happened with that show if anybody had been there to sort of push back against some of the writing decisions. Mm. Mm. There's, you know, there's things to say in favor of one person writing things because all of the chunky, strange bits stay in there and nobody yeah. smooths them out and, and just collaborates in, in, in making them happen in the end. But it, what I was going to say is that I think that there's a model of artistic genius that's about the solo creator, and it comes from other art forms. Yeah. It, it, novelists are solo creators, artists, painters are solo creators. Um, TV is more like being in a band in a lot of ways, and I don't think that people have the language to talk about the power of collaboration, even though that's in most shows central to the forum. And even though I think that there are certain individual television creators who've done a fantastic job, I, I worry about elevating solo creation over... Uh, over and, and I think that's part of the tension that happens when we talk about the comparison between the two forms. Yeah. Uh, this is a, I'm just going to say one thing about uh, Breaking Bad. I've always wondered what would have happened if Vince Gilligan um, basically got to do the things he wanted to do in the end of that season without 
talking with all of the writers who had made that show so brilliant. That's a very collaborative show. That wasn't his solo creation. But I know that when he started the final season, among other things, he thought about having um, uh, Skylar commit suicide. Now, that's a crazy idea, and people would have been extremely inflamed, but it's a very interesting idea. And I'm not a fan of the final episode of that show, and I feel like the final episode of that show has some of the markers of collaborative love of a writer's room for their characters and wanting resolution. And I wonder... I, I'm just thinking out loud about like well, what a solo creator offers that a group doesn't. There's a doesn't. whole thing about final episodes right now. Yes. Yeah. That it seems, especially when you have a show which has been very rich and which, which audiences have engaged with very deeply over a long period of time, nobody knows how to end it. Yes. You know, I mean, that's to say, lost. Mm. <laughs> you know? I mean, where you actually felt that the writers were making it up as they went along and, 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 and didn't know what any of the iconography meant, really. You know, so, um, or, or The Sopranos, where people were dissatisfied with the, with the final episode. But they or, were wrong. But, <laughs> yeah. Was... No, no. I mean, I agree, actually agree with you that they were wrong in that case. Um, but there seems to be a problem when something that has been like a big part of the culture, that has been there for like a number of years, um, developing in all kinds of interesting ways and with people have very strong opinions yes. about, about it. It seems very difficult to have an ending that satisfies that readership. And, and then that the question readership. becomes, is your, is your goal when you're making television to satisfy the audience, mm. to make them happy, to punish them, mm. to surprise them? Mm. Like, I mean, and shows, shows uh, and novels do too, but um, shows have multiple audiences and often the separate audiences that all watch it together want different things. I always, I wrote about Sex and the City and Sex and the City was a classic example of when that show ended, the finale, literally half of the audience wanted Carrie to end up with Big and half of the audience, including me, was really bothered by the idea of that being the closure to what to me was a very beautiful and radical intervention into the romantic comedy as a form and that kind of gave in to the, you know, the marriage ending kind of ending and I thought sort of chickened out. But there were plenty of people who loved that ending. And so with, with TV endings, I agree with you, part of the thing is you've drained people for years. If you read a novel and you're disappointed by the ending, you've been reading it for, you know, the person's been writing it for a long time but you've yeah. only been reading it. You haven't been reading a chapter of it every week for three nope. years. You but don't if, end up as mad. But if we go back to the 18th century, and Clarissa. Clarissa didn't give the readers the happy ending that they'd been asking no, for. No, it deliberately went against it. Yeah, and yeah. We have this thing that says that artistic achievement perhaps uh, can be measured by uh, the degree to which it's difficult or the degree well, to which it challenges well, I mean, uh, that affirmation. The reason why I think Emily's right about The Sopranos uh, and the ending of it is that it seems to me the most satisfying way creatively to end a story which has gone on for a very long time in the way that that has, is not to end it. Mm. You know, it's to end on a comma. You know, not to end on a full stop or an exclamation mark. Mm. Um, to end sort of in an unresolved way. But it's I mean, also I... the challenge of the anti-hero, because if you build up an anti-hero, then the question has to be, do they get their comeuppance? 
and how does that affect an audience that's... Yeah, well, that's a very old-fashioned question. Yeah, and it's very... I'm a very old-fashioned man. And it's so complicated, because, of course, that show has, has so much to do with all the debates that ever went on about gangster movies and their effects on the audience and all of that kind of thing, and I don't expect any one show to... Um, be able to resolve those. But I always thought Breaking Bad was f fascinating because it's not really an anti-hero show after all. It's a show about a decent person who becomes a villain. Mm. So it's a, an arc toward villainy. Um, to me, I always felt like it was a kind of a moral response to a lot of the anti-hero shows that were on TV. But the ending made me question that. And so it's weird that one hour of TV mm. would alter your relationship with the rest of it. But I just think it's this yeah. fatal quality. Of course, it only hangs over dramas. I mean, we're not even talking about all of the other kinds of TV shows. And you know, to me, as, as rich as TV drama is, um, I think right now, comedy and things that are merges of comedy and drama are actually more provocative and explosive and to some degree satisfying than, than what is going on with drama. But drama continues to dominate the conversation and I think it yeah. is because we, you know, of all of these things we're talking about, like we can well, talk I, about it. I do it think that, that the, the 30 minute sitcom is mm. one of the great American art forms, you know, and, and, uh, and continues to be, you know, I mean, I, I mean I'm much more addicted to those things than the What 60s. shows do you watch? Oh, Big Bang Theory. Yeah. You know, uh, I, mean, that, um, I mean, just because it's very unusual to have a show about smart people. <laughs> and to show, reveal that they're just as idiotic as non-smart people. I cannot tell you how relieved I am that you didn't say two and a half men. I think we would have, no. we would have lost most of the room in a single no, I, go. I, I did not say two and a half men. No, no, <laughs> important to note. Note that, Twitter. In, in about in five minutes... In either it's Charlie or Ashton incarnations. Good. Good no discerning. Di no difference. Yeah, that's why you win the big literary prizes. Thank that you. discernment. <laughs> In about five minutes, you're going to get a chance to ask some questions. Um, I mention this now because there are microphones you need to make your way to, so it wouldn't be a bad idea if you're busting to be at the front of the queue to move there now, but not quite yet. Uh, comedy. Comedy. Salman mentioned the, the kind of 30-minute sitcom format. It seems like it's almost a more rigid convention to which it yeah. follows. Historically, yes. You know, you get I Love Lucy and the invention of the format and the original notion of it being the characters stay the same, you can repeat them in any order, you start from scratch with a reset button and, you know, derives from vaudeville to a certain extent and like all of these... I mean, TV started as a live form that came from, not from novels, but from vaudeville and radio and live stage presentations. And for a bunch of economic and formal reasons, you develop this half-hour, totally repeated thing. When I started writing about TV, people would consistently say to me, sitcoms is the lowest form of television. This was before reality came along. To, 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 so that people could sneer at that, which is a whole other subject, and of course a big part of TV. But I mean, to me, the last few years have been just this explosive sort of rolling over of experiments with the half-hour comedic format, both in shows like Girls and Louie that really you, you don't even know whether they qualify as comedies per se, but also in more pure kinds of sitcom things like um, ranging from, you know, how Seinfeld, which violated the rule that comedies had to be warm, <laughs> um, it, you know, turned into essentially the British office, which uh, was a response to reality television, a very angry show, and then the, the rise of all the cringe comedies like Curb Your Enthusiasm. Then you get the American office, which really radically changed that same formula. 
Then you get shooting off that, Parks and Recreation, which is a very warm and humane show, but that uses some of the same language. And then one of my favorite shows, um, Enlightened, which to me this is all this fantastic flow of comedic writers in a different way than drama writers punching out the rules of the form and finding new, prickly, somewhat sometimes cerebral ways, like on a show like Community, um, ways of reinventing what a half-hour comedy is and thinking about the nature of TV and comedy. But I feel like people haven't talked about that as much because there really is this historical way of just dismissing comedy as something, partially because it's pleasurable, partially because it's short, partially because it's collaborative, so you can't say it's this one guy's thing, except with a show like Community, where you actually do have a showrunner who fits into the classic model of the, you know, belligerent, belligerent irascible, opinionated guy, so, you know. um, Let's just say one strange thing, which is that I think I may hold a strange record, which is of appearing in three major sitcoms without ever appearing in them. Um, There there was an episode of Seinfeld in which Seinfeld and Kramer think they've seen me in the steam room and 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 there's this guy sitting there, doesn't look at all like me, but they ask him like coded questions. (laughs) (laughs) And and when he says that his name is Sal Bass, they think that's like salmon, and so it has to be me. Um, Anyway, so that's that's the show that I'm not in. There was, I was in an episode of The Golden Girls. Really? Yeah. Um, There's there's an episode in which, you know, when they've got the hotel... um, where people are always seeing me on another floor. They say, you know, you never, you never know who I just saw upstairs. And people run upstairs, oh no, he just went downstairs to the elevator. And so I'm, I'm all over the building. But not, and, and the other one, which is my real favorite, is that I was in one of the very final episodes of Cheers. Really? Um, yeah, where, where, you know, in the bar, Cliff and Norm are watching some award show on TV. Um, because there's a famous porno movie star who's, going, who's supposed to come and present one of the awards, and they're waiting for her. And, and the gag is that with, as each award is, is, is given, instead of it being this girl they're waiting for, it becomes more and more ludicrous people. Like the next award is going to be presented by the Pope, you know, and they, and, and they go boo, hiss, etc., because they want whatever her name is. And, and the next award will be presented by the President of the United States, and they, they boo, and eventually one of them is me that I'm supposed to be, they boo, hiss, and eventually they get their porno movie star, and then they're happy. So, so. <laughs> So this is one of the reasons why... Also, you, why were, you, you were disappeared on The Leftovers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. This is... I haven't seen it, but apparently I get... I'm raptured, right? You are. Yeah, yeah. The rapture takes away some people and there's a montage uh, on the screen in the background. Yeah, yeah. And you're one of the ones to go, and so is Gary Busey. I think, so. you know, I think any list you're on with Gary Busey is a problem. I, I, I think <laughs> one possible list would be men to whom Blanche from The Golden Girls would be attracted. And I think... You're, you're definitely on that list. Okay, that's a, that's a terrifying list. We're going to bring right. the lights up and uh, take some questions from the floor. Our preference is for questions rather than five-part statements that bear nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> that's, that's just me, but see how you go with that. Uh, over here. Hello. Hi, Emily. Hi, Salman. Hi, Michael. Hi. How's it going? Um, my question concerns uh, what seems to be the unending trend of adaptations of novels to television. I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on the reverse of that, so the future of what maybe novel adaptations of 
popular television shows and whether you think that's a viable form of entertainment or not? Well, the, the most successful one, I would think, being Game of Thrones. I mean, there have been several... I actually just watched Outlander, which are books that I've never read, but I really like the series. Um, I mean, I, I, if it's a good show, I'm in favor. <laughs> if it's a bad show, I'm against. So I, yeah. I don't... Well, I mean, I've, I've never... I've not read the Game of Thrones uh, and the Song of Ice and Fire. I've not, I've not read... Uh, the novels, and now I don't, I really don't want to because I don't want to know what's coming. You know, I, I actually want to watch the series. Um, and, but, you know, it's always happened. I mean, you know, three quarters of all the movies ever made uh, are based on books in some way. Print culture still seems to be an inexhaustible source for, for executives, producers to, to raid, to make, to make drama out of it. I mean, it's just... As you say, if, it's a, if it ends up being a good show, then fair enough, and if it doesn't, then it sucks. The and second it, part of the question was, was about whether the adaptation would ever run the other way. Are we going to read oh. a Salman Rushdie uh, version of the final series of Lost? Which I would buy. <laughs> I had, until this moment, I hadn't thought of it, but now... There was, um, there was an episode of Lost, which I didn't see, but somebody wrote a long essay about it, in which one of the characters on the plane is reading Haroon and the Sea of Stories. Um, and this, there was this long essay which interpreted the whole of Lost through Haroon and the Sea of Stories. You know? So I think maybe I already wrote Lost. <laughs> Someone <laughs> so, had to. Yeah, it's just that I <laughs> didn't get any of the money, unfortunately. We're going to throw over this side now. Um, I was just going to ask uh, what the panel would feel would be the opinion of television being viewed as sort of the, the vox populi, the voice of the masses, particularly through reality TV shows such as, I hate to say, but Geordie Shore and similar fairly appalling programs. Um, just wondering whether you view the novel as sort of a more literary, uh, I guess, um, aristocratic sense or whether that Ooh. could be viewed as a vox populi as well. I know um, uh, paperbacks in the early 20th century could be considered in the same vein as reality TV, but um, sort of talking more generally literature today. Highbrow, lowbrow, is there a... Um, I don't think like that, really. I mean, I, I, my view is that uh, it's, it's clear that very few novels ever can aspire to audiences such as the audience for Friends, let's say. I mean, it just, it just doesn't happen, but that's... that's uh, uh, that doesn't mean that people writing novels think that they're writing some kind of elite form. In fact, in fact I think that the, the nature of the novel is in a popular, in a, in a proper way, vulgar. I mean, it's, about, it's about plunging into life, you know, and, and uh, if you look at the very greatest novelists, they, um, they all were really interested in every aspect of life and how it's lived, you know, and I think... Uh, so, no, I don't, th I don't think that. Um, I mean, compared to Jersey Shore, yes. <laughs> you know, compared to anything with, with people whose names begin with K, um, uh, <laughs> except Kafka. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, Kim Kafka. <laughs> there's a, there's a, Don't force me to defend Kim Kardashian. The trial. I do it. Um, oh, no, no, please, I, I, defend I, Kim Kardashian. No, I just, I, I, <laughs> 
<laughs> I, don't, I don't like the fact that she's become shorthand in a lot of ways for these, these, it, but the, the, these genuine mass class tensions that haunt television specifically. And television is so broad, there are so many different kinds of it. Um, you know, it's funny, it's just impossible to discuss what the whole form is in that way. Um, but one thing I will say is that sometimes people have this nostalgia for the moment that, uh, uh, that you know, the moment of must-see TV and the show that everybody watched. I have very little nostalgia for that because I feel like, among other things, if a show has to speak to everybody, it's more likely to be written by a small segment of people. There's both artistic experimentation and broader representation are possible when you have shows with small audiences. The part of the mass class thing that I am personally concerned about is the fact that because of these anti-hero shows and because of the, the history of status anxiety, I feel like people have formed this hierarchy of essentially what kind of show is prestigious enough to brag about to your friends that you watch. And I think this is actually very dangerous because I think that it actually keeps people from recognizing uh, the value of shows that look junky and often are associated with things that people think of as junky and mass. And, and you know, this is a trauma that goes way back for me because I am a TV critic because of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I basically spent 1999 drunkenly arguing with people about why Buffy the Vampire Slayer was as worthy a show to talk about as The Sopranos. Not because it was entertaining, it was, but because I felt like it was a beautiful mesh of different genres. It was doing these incredible operatic things. It had this stuff to say about women and girls. But it was a hard sell because it was called Buffy the Vampire Slayer and it didn't look very good. So my feeling about it is that, is that uh, people need to break through those prejudices in order to see what's beautiful and original in TV and shed the anxieties that, uh, of the past that all had to do with only wanting to say that they watch TV if it's something that's undeniably classy in certain kinds of socially accepted ways. Yeah. But the rise of the e-book is, you know, it allows people to be reading Fifty Shades of Grey on public transport and not be embarrassed. The concept of the guilty pleasure yeah. isn't unique to television. No. That's true. That's true. And as, you know... Yeah, no, I mean, I think, unfortunately, people seem perfectly willing to read that in book form as well. <laughs> 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 And, and I mean, I, I must say, I went, uh, I saw the, the trailer for the movies in, when I went to the movies recently, and, and, uh, and I heard that when that trailer was released on the web, that it had more hits than any trailer in the history of putting trailers on the web. You know, so unfortunately, a lot of people are gonna go and see the film as well. Uh, you know, perhaps it will be a good film. I mean, I doubt it because I'm not interested well, in, in that book. But, you know, for instance, um, The Bridges worse. of Madison it, County. It, it, no. The Bridges of Madison County is a good movie. And yeah. I don't think it's a very good book. So no, no, I mean, I, do th I think, you know, the, that kind of bad book, good movie thing could, could well work mm -hmm. in its favor. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you, have, you, have you, know, a real, I, you have a real grudge against Fifty Shades of Grey because it came up last <laughs> yeah, night, too. You know, you know, you know the, uh, all right, yeah. tell, the, you know the goat joke, goats break it, two goats break into the movie projection booth of a movie theater and start munching on the film. And after a while, the first goat says to the second goat, so how do you like the movie? And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and the second goat says, yeah, it's, it's okay, but the book was better. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're going to go up to the top right-hand corner there. Okay, um, this is a question uh, mostly for um, okay. Salman Rushdie. It's in, uh, I suppose, two parts. But the first bit, uh, maybe you've been asked this before, but after you've written uh, The Book of Books, The Book of Bookers, basically Midnight's Children, 
earlier on in your career. Where do you go from there? Do you sort of end up writing sitcoms and so on? I mean, once you've done something that is, uh, can change the world in such a degree, how does that motivate you to go on and uh, do things which may not achieve the same level of impact? I'm, I'm going to stop you before you get to the second part of your question because I think there's so much in that first part, some of which is mildly insulting, that I might let Salman <laughs> answer um, because there are other people who uh, are waiting. Well, I mean, you know, there's a... Uh, I, I used to be friendly with the great American novelist Joseph Heller who wrote Catch-22. And people would often say to him how he wrote that early in his career and, and had never managed to write anything as good since. And he would answer, yeah, but neither has anyone else. <laughs> so, uh, no, I mean, look, Midnight Children is so impossibly long ago in my life that I don't think about it very much. I mean, I'm just trying to write the next book, and one or two of them have been okay. You know? So, uh, I mean, that's it. You know, if you're, if you're a, I mean, actually, when I wrote Midnight Children, it never remotely occurred to me that it would have anything like the, the success that it had. I mean, I thought, okay, it's got a good publisher, that's nice, and you know, it's got some good reviews, and that's nice, and maybe a few people will buy it who I don't know personally and, and, you know, and are not related to me. Um, the idea that it would turn into this thing that it became, it just was completely not in my mind at all. So all I was trying to do was think of, you know, the next book. That's all you ever do is you think of the next book. You know, that's all there is. Up there. Uh, this is a follow-up to the first question on adaptations. Um, I'd love to hear all three of your opinions on the top five modern novels you'd most like to see be turned into a TV series. Whoa. That's a great question. I am going to reduce it to one or two. Okay. Uh, yeah. I will say, I've literally... They kick us out of here. I've literally written three different pieces about why I won't make top ten lists at the end of every year. It's a... It's supposed to be, uh, like, for critics, you have to do that, and I'm just completely against it, so I'm very resistant um, to making lists of things. But part of that is because I don't have the authoritative knowledge to, you know, I've read a bunch of novels, but, I, I, like, it's a handful, comparatively. So, but I, I will say, uh, Kate Atkinson's uh, Life After Life that I just mm -hmm. read, I actually did think while I was reading it how it would work, because it is such a literary conceit that she does where I, I, I don't want to give anything away but the character dies a lot and I, I wondered how it would work for a TV show so I would name that one but. Uh, Proust <laughs> by David Milch you know, I mean, let me first ask of all, you though what's Marcel's thing you know what's his thing <laughs> <laughs> well he has he, he takes a long time. For a long time, he goes to bed early. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think that's a Showtime hook somehow. No, uh, no but I mean the thing about I, you know seriously the thing about in Alain Recherche is that is that first of all it's very 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 long and there's there's even more material there than in George R R Martin, and even though every, nobody gets beyond the beginning of Volume One because he takes forty pages to go to sleep. Um, <laughs> As it goes on, it becomes really very full of action. I mean, like the Dreyfus affair is in there, and 
and, and th there's a lot of, you know, steamy love stories with the aristocracy and etc. I mean, it actually, it actually could be a very, very good, very long-running drama series. And you could get a biscuit sponsor and it would, it would make the whole thing work. You could, yes. Yeah, yes. Perfect. Uh, we don't have time for any more questions. I'm sorry, from the floor. I'm just going to ask one more for the two of you, um, which is this. The proposition today was that television has replaced the novel. We've all rejected that as not worthy of discussion. <laughs> which, is, which is great. Um, but dangerous ideas. I'd like each of you to give me your most dangerous thought about either the novel or television. Give me a bit of danger. Ah. Uh. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think there is a, a genuine fear of the novel running out of readers. I mean, I think that that is a danger for the novel. I mean, um, uh, people tell you all the time how, as the generations unfold, people read less. You know? And so in that sense, you could say that television is endangering the novel not by adapting it or replacing it creatively, but just by it being what people do instead of reading. Um, I don't know, I find myself oddly optimistic though. Hmm. You know, I mean, I think, I mean, I go around universities quite a lot, talking and so on, and I just think there's a lot of young people there who are really interested in, in, in the prose, in, in, the, in prose fiction, long form prose fiction, as we now call the novel. Um, <laughs> you wrote in 1996, article for the New Yorker uh, in defense of the novel yet again, it was yeah, called, yeah, that was suggesting when, that, that even then you'd had to defend it many times. No, no, I mean, you know, people are always trying to kill the novel. You know, I mean, everything was supposed to kill the novel. Um, you know, television was supposed to kill the novel when it first came to be. You know, movies were supposed to kill, radio was supposed to kill the novel. Um, everything, you know, and the novel obstinately refuses to die. I mean, did you need, you know, Buffy the novel slayer to show up and, and, and she wouldn't succeed either. You know, it's a, it's a... Giles would protect it. I think it's... <laughs> I think it's... It's very hard form to kill. It's obstinately uh, refuses to die. I'm trying to think of what a dangerous idea would be. Um, I, I mean, one thing is that uh, I don't write a lot about reality television, and I'm very sympathetic with a lot of the criticisms people have of it for a variety of ethical reasons, aside from aesthetic ones. But I actually do think that it would be refreshing if people dropped the, the, the sort of the reflexive contempt that people have for those shows, because they are so popular and they so clearly speak to a variety of different issues for people. And also because reality TV shows vary so much that when they're all lumped together in this kind of, people are disgusting narcissists. I think it's, I think it, I, I think there are more interesting things to say about reality television, which is, after all, an offshoot of documentary, which people seem to think of as a completely prestigious highbrow form. So, I, I, one, one thing I, one thing I, and, you know, and I think a lot of the apocalyptic uh, denunciations of reality television, um, it would be useful to let them drop away a bit so that people could really examine the way that it's exploded into many forms. A friend of mine had once said, you know, people thought it was going to create the end of the world and instead it created the revival of ballroom dancing. Um, which I, I do think is true, like there are so many different kinds of it um, that, that, uh, that I, I think, you know, and I'm sort of saying this to myself as well because I don't write a lot about reality, I'm more interested in scripted television, is that there are ways to talk about um, the political and aesthetic qualities of, of reality television that are um, more substantive and that people should probably 
adopt rather than the sheer snark that's been so fun for the last 15 years. So I, I think that's the one, one idea that I would say. Because TV, reality TV has basically re replaced TV as the kicking uh, form, like uh, the, the medium that everybody can kick for fun. So I, I, I sort of, like that makes me feel protective of it in a funny way. So who would you kick? But, well, yes, it's true. There always has to be some, some medium to kick. I can't really think of anything. True offhand. detective. Well, that's a different matter. It's a much more complicated conversation. I could have a whole That's potentially too that. dangerous for today or for this crowd. Yes. Um, uh, I think we have definitively proved, if nothing else, that video killed the radio star. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a start. Uh, please join me in thanking our extraordinary panelists, Emily Nussbaum. <laughs>